You're listening to The Dot Project. I am Rhonda Elizabeth. And I am Rhonda's co-host for The Dot Project, Aaron Stallworth. Now, the co-host and I have a book club, TDPB Reading. You know about that. In October, we read We Cast a Shadow. And one of us read The Ones Who Don't Say They Love You. We came together... We came together on the gram to talk about the dystopian world created by author Maurice Carlos Ruffin, a world that strives to be colorblind, where dreadlock ordinances get people yoked up and children of the incarcerated are disenfranchised. It's crazy shit. Crazy as hell. And it hits a little too close to home when thinking of the path this nation was on with our last president and the residue from it. But this was a damn good read, and I have overused the term page turner to describe it. But it is indeed that, a haunting tale that is no big stretch of the truth. Enjoy our talk. We were cutting up per usual. Cutting up. (laughs) That was a delayed reaction. What's up? What's up? What's up? Holla if you hear me. I don't think you really want me to holla, but I do hear you. <laughs> Welcome everybody in IG land to TDPB Reading Book Talk. This is, what book talk is this? Is this our eighth probably? I'm counting the book from uh, the back. I think it's Book Talk 1000. Yeah, Book Talk 1000. Welcome. This book talk we are... <laughs> Happy to explore the work of Maurice Carlos Ruffin, author out of New Orleans with We Cast a Shadow and dabbled in. I dabbled. I think Rhonda may have. I was all in. Rhonda was was all all in. in. She is a much faster reader than I am with the ones who don't say they love you. Oh, my God. It was so good. Yes. I read uh, two of the shorts, uh, Cocoon specifically. And uh, the ones who don't say love you, but I'm looking forward to reading more. But for the sake of the book talk, which we try to do at least once a month, I only got in two of those. But I did fully read and thoroughly enjoy We Cast a Shadow. You still get a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. You get a round of applause for that. Thank you. We Cast a Shadow. I am still not quite on your level as a reader, but I am proud of the progress that I have made. That's why we have goals and we have tomorrow, right? Yes, we do. And always try for tomorrow. Rhonda, you, you presented uh, Maurice uh, Carlos Ruffin's work to us, and I had not heard of him, and I think this is his first book. But how did, how did he get on your radar? Well, you know, I'm a faithful reader of the New York Times, mm-hmm. and so I was just sitting here in this chair back there, actually, minding my own business, reading this review, and I was like, wow, this sounds amazing. And I had seen his name and his cover pop up on Instagram. I didn't know who he was. And I thought, I need to get into this. I need to know who this person is. So I said, hey, we got to do this. This looks um, wonderful. He's a damn good writer. Um, I've referred to it for the first time as a page turner. I mean, I know all y'all readers out there, page turners may be a common thing, but (laughs) of the 10 books we have read, they've all been good books, but this is the first one where I'm like, I cannot wait to get to that next chapter. I don't want to put this book down quite yet. Why was it such a page turner for you? I don't know. As we, when we get into the talk, we, um, 
we come to discover that he kind of talks about his life and I just found, and he's a black man. So I just found him relatable. Um, and I just wanted to hear where he was going, even though it was not a biography about his life. He told he, the, the main character is a black man with a son. Uh, uh, he's living in New Orleans. So he's from the South or in DC, of course, but I just, it felt it was something very relatable about the characters and about the language he was using to tell his story uh, from Maurice itself. So. Let's take context. So, what's yeah. the plot? What are they trying to do? What? Who is the narrator, and what is he trying to do? Uh, so, the narrator would be the father who was married uh, to a woman who is probably of Asian descent, or is of Asian descent. Oh, she is. Uh, I thought she was white. Okay, so she's of Asian. Oh descent. wait, wait, wait. Oh, she had red hair, right? Why did I, I think wanna, so? I thought Penelope was white. Why did I make a beige? I may be crossing my books up somehow. Okay, but Penelope goes by Penny. Uh, so she, a white woman. They have a son who, of course, would be mixed race. And the son has a marking, a birthmark of sorts on his face and maybe on other parts of his body. Uh, he's fair skinned, maybe my complexion, your complexion, who knows. But there are marks on his face that are, are darker and probably the, the tone of skin tone of a darker complected black uh, person. And throughout the book, the father is wanting to eliminate those dark marks from his son's body through demelanization. Demelanization. He wants to get a promotion at his job simply to pay to get his son a demelanization operation so that he does not have any darkness on his skin. And they they weren't really alluding to that they wanted him to be white, but they did want he did want those dark marks removed because those dark marks were definitely uh, resemblances of him being of the blackness that was within him as a, a, a mixed child uh, with a black father and a white mother. So this, mm -hmm. the time period of this plot is years into the future, decades into the future. Mm -hmm. And Ruffin does an amazing job of doing flashbacks and kind of set, letting us know that at one point in time we were here in the present of 2019, 2021, what is time? That there is a procedure to become de uh, demelanized was shocking. And that was one of the horrifying elements of the book. So we're discussing this book on Halloween. Mm -hmm. That was one of the horrifying elements of the book to me, that such a procedure existed that it was well well known and people engaged in it without mm -hmm. any shame. Um, so they're living in what I would consider to be this dystopian kind of society where society has really broken down. But you mentioned the word dystopian. It made me think about, I mean, even in, in current day, we could probably think of three or four celebrities who have undergone something to lighten their, their skin for whatever reason, we, we, we may not be privy to because I haven't read any autobiographies of these folks who have lightened their skin. And no, I'm not talking about Michael Jackson. I'm, I'm talking of other people in the entertainment or sports world uh, who have purposely lightened their skin. And that's what I mainly thought about as I got further along into the book. And it made me think about what were their reasons for wanting to to be demelanized for, for lack of another term. And why is it that they chose to uh, go down a path that would make their skin uh, not appear black? And in saying that, I believe in the book, uh, Ruffin really broke down why the father probably felt so strongly that his son needed to have that spot removed or why his skin would, would needed to be lightened or why his life would be easier if he were, in fact, uh, 
light skin or, or, or white. One of the most interesting things that I got from the way the narrator was speaking is how he came to believe that it was important for his sons to not have melanin in his body. Um, through his father's incarceration, through his mother's arm being broken, through that whole incident, uh, through what other instances besides that main one where his father was arrested and, and do you think um, probably made him think so negatively about being black or, or being melanated? So he's a lawyer. So that suggests mm -hmm. that he's gone through um, a rigorous education system to get where he is. And we know that um, our education system favors whiteness and it favors children who uh, who have a certain aesthetic, whether they just are white or look white. And so I believe that his education experience probably influenced his decision to want to, um, to see his son be as light as possible. And then also his employment at the firm also probably influenced his decision to see that. And observing his, uh, the community around the Tico, mm -hmm. um, seeing how supercargo was treated seeing how people in the neighborhood were treated. So I think the narrator both had that personal experience with his family, but also just being a person in, in America has um, also experienced that. So yeah. we know that Penny was never an advocate for this demalinization. Right. She wanted Nigel to be accepted just as he was. But what's interesting about that relationship is that it revealed how Penny and the narrator experience life so differently. Mm -hmm. She has uh, a sense of being aware of life. She says, I know things are difficult, but I think that she was speaking from a place of privilege because she had never experienced that level of discrimination based on skin tone, whereas the narrator had. And so mm -hmm. while she is, um, I support her decision and wanting to accept her child for who she is, I would appreciate it if she had said to him, there are things about this procedure that I will never understand. That being right. said, we're still not going through with it. And as you mentioned in one of our chat chats, she was willing to divorce the narrator to prevent him from going forward with this procedure for Nigel. But Ruffin did something so interesting. He ends that conversation right there, tragically through her death. So mm -hmm. we never find out if she was in fact going to go forward with the divorce. And also ironically, she was killed by the police who said that he didn't see her. And in yeah. that scene, the police originally is really upset. They're like, oh my God, you know, I, I didn't see her, he's stumbling. But then when he sees the narrator, he's like, oh. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly it becomes that much less important that, yeah. uh, that she was killed. Right. Some of the other horrifying elements that I found was the blatant concentration of Black people into the TICO, the mm -hmm. housing development that they described, that it was so commonplace to, um, to keep Black people in, uh, in those living conditions. It's, you know, obvious now as well. So it's not like we are oblivious to what happens in public housing and lower income housing, mm -hmm. but that society had disintegrated to the point where it was well 
accept it and the boundaries around the Tico could be expanded. Mm -hmm. Then there was also the law that prohibited, I think, um, dreadlocks. If I remember correctly from the story that one of the struggles that Supercargo had was that mm -hmm. he got his, um, his locks shaved by, mm -hmm. uh, by the police. So right, just just while he was in custody, not while he was yeah. charged or, or convicted of anything, but while he was in custody, they can make a decision that they need to shave your head, and, and that's what happened to him. And it just speaks to the how rights can be lost uh, as as we vote for people and they make decisions about what the laws of the land will be. That law of the land could fall onto the books at any time, mm -hmm. and in this case, it did fall on the books, and it's not too far fetched if you think about it, uh, in our society, uh, outside of, of uh, the society that Maurice created for us in his book. I wanted to take us to some of the humorous aspects mm -hmm. of the story. Were there any funny <laughs> elements of the story or there are elements of the story? Uh, I mean, just the way he wrote is, it felt like a joning session on the playground uh, mm -hmm. sometimes. Like, we're both fair-skinned, light-skinned, yellow mm -hmm. bone, whatever you, what we've been called throughout our life. Right. You know, and speaking to the book again, I mean, they wanted to, that may have not have been an issue growing up is where I wanted to lighten my skin, but the fact that I had full lips or a full nose, that sort of thing, there were times in my life where I was like, oh, I wonder if I had smaller lips like Timmy that's on TV. Would that, <laughs> would that be more attractive? And thankfully, uh, uh, women and cousins and sisters and friends in my life made me know that uh, my nose and my lips were very beautiful. So I've, I've grown to love and accept them and, and love them just as much and more. But in speaking to that, there was one line in the book where he says, you got some real repugnant back to Africa lips for sure. Need to trim them shits down. That's one of my favorite lines in this book because one, it spoke to the experience I just uh, mentioned to you. But those lines were throughout the book, and that's how I can recall my cousins or myself talking to folks on the playground or, or whatnot at school. And I love a book that's relatable like that, um, where I can hear the language. What was your funniest moment that, that comes to mind for you? Oh, my God. I loved every time the narrator engaged with Araminta. Mm. This <laughs> yeah. So... Araminta is Nigel's friend. They start off as childhood friends and then they develop a crush and they eventually um, get married or uh, commit themselves. I don't know if they actually formally get married, but they commit themselves uh, you know, to life and have a children, et cetera. But in the beginning, the narrator is so irritated by everything that Araminta represents. She has a darker complexion. She is very mm -hmm. confident in that. She has a strong self-love. Um, her name is Araminta. We know that is Harriet Tubman's uh, first name. And so I love that Ruffin is signal signaling to us, the reader, that Araminta represents liberation. She represents mm -hmm. freedom. She represents confidence. She represents a, a woman who is unafraid to walk in her truth, who is going to literally choose uh, freedom or death, that's it. There's nothing, there's nothing else left for her. The narrator can't stand it. Like mm -hmm. she gets on his everlasting nerve, yeah. but she persists in being who she is. 
And he has to respect that. Um, and eventually she wins over Nigel. And so Nigel chooses not only her to be his life partner, but the way that she also wants to live life. So I found every scene, I found his consternation just hilarious because his obsession with becoming lighter, his obsession with wanting to make his son lighter, his, his thinking that he was right in his perspective got on my fucking nerves. <laughs> I wanted to stab him in the eye mm -hmm. and just say, get over it already. No. That's not like, it's not happening for you. So Araminsa was my girl. I loved every time she got on his nerves because I knew that she was right. I believed in her opinion. And those two characters and even the narrator um, reflect something else that I think that Ruffin did exceptionally well, which was his character development. In just a few words, he's yeah. able to create these memorable figures that play such important roles in moving the story forward and creating conflict between the characters. So I would love to end up somewhere and just be steeped in this conversation, minus the things like the dreadlock ordinance, no thank you, mm -hmm. but to be around these really... Um, these really engaging and lively uh, characters would be, yeah. that would be a dream for me. Yeah, there, there's so many, those are all I see you moments, right? The Armenta, the Supercargo, these are folks that people see through or people uh, brush aside and don't, and don't give, um, don't value. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that Ruffin made them some main characters and said, I see you. And I know why you're important. And for Araminta to end up with Nigel in the end and to, to greatly influence Nigel throughout, uh, uh, whether it was on the pages or just for us to assume that she is, was a real, a real influence on his life. I appreciated that. What about Jojo? Jojo was such an interesting figure. Yeah, Jojo, and just like I am in real life with names, I remember those three very well. They stood out to me. But JoJo, for whatever reason, didn't uh, have have gravi as much gravity. I appreciated mm -hmm. JoJo. Um, was there a particular reason why JoJo stood out for you? or? Well, I thought that him as this lackadaisical, kind of comical side hustle pharmacist mm -hmm. was important to... Um, to to contrast the narrator so jojo and the narrator and we should say that jojo is white so jojo mm -hmm. and the narrator went to school together so they have this long history and jojo was basically allowed to just kind of loaf around and not really have any purpose he had mm -hmm. people supporting him he had family supporting his habits his life had kind of uh, dissolved right. his marriage had ended and so he wasn't really a person at, throughout the course of the book who was very stable mm -hmm. but he did not seem to have the anxiety that the narrator did he didn't seem to have the problems that's narrated in maintaining a family or maintaining employment so without jojo we may not have seen as diff um, how difficult it was for the narrator to um to to move forward with with his job and to stay married yeah i did appreciate that because you know the weight of uh racism and the oppressiveness of it uh does not exist for white folks and i think that is that that's exactly what he was trying to say is that 
even though you're a lawyer, you're doing well, you're trying to get all this money for this procedure. I'm divorced. I'm, I'm living, you know, here and there and depending on people, I still am kind better of equal off. to better off than you even. Yeah. Yeah. I'm emotionally and, better off. Yeah. He's right. not experiencing that same struggle. So I wanted to talk as we kind of wrap up about both the beginning of the novel and then also the end. One of the first things that I texted to you as we were getting started reading this book at the beginning of October, I was like, yo, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> loving it. And uh, I want to explain why I wasn't loving it and how I actually came and, and how differently we probably saw that. That may have been what made it a page turner for me because you had to put it down and be like, ah, gave you a little uh, slimy feel or something. Whereas I read it and I was like, what the fuck? Dude so is, is, is butt down. naked at a, par at, a, at a law firm party. Uh, very dehumanized. Uh, but anyway, break it down. But that was it. That was it. He the dehumanization, a... right? Yes. Yeah. So we meet the narrator and the first thing that he says is my name doesn't matter. And so as we were saying offline, Toni Morrison would ask, it doesn't matter to who. So I thought that, I was like, your name doesn't matter. Okay, so I'm getting big invisible man vibes here. This is sounding like the, the main character is operating in a world where he's basically invisible. It's like, okay, so that already is disorienting. And then as he goes to describe that he's at this party where he and three, uh, two other associates, black associates, are seeking to be promoted and their promotion hinges on their success in a costume party. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the costume that the partners love the most will be the person who ultimately gets the promotion. And then he talks about the costumes that they're wearing and they're all very degrading stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, I just cannot do this right now. So I yeah. literally was plodding through chapter by chapter because, as you said very nicely, my <laughs> empathetic heart just could not handle it. Yeah. But he told her the way that was fairly hilarious. Um, yes, your empathetic heart, the super empathy heart, super empathetic heart was on. So was similar to in our character from uh, Octavia Butler's Parable of Sour. Maybe you were having some super empath uh, I would moments. love that. I could be Lord <laughs> Olivina. I love it. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Um, but you wanted to fast forward to the end from there? Yeah, are, so, are, she, are, so we gonna, are we gonna throw in the unicorn paragraphs? A long paragraph, but it was such a poignant paragraph. But <laughs> <laughs> I think that can be our conclusion. So I started okay. off not really loving this book because I found the world that he had created to be so disoriented, so mm -hmm. disorienting, um, so devastating to the spirit because all of the things that um, that we as a, a progressive society are desperately fighting against and that activists are doing so much to prevent had actually come to pass. Once Ruffin moves the narrator out of the, uh, that scene with the lawyers and his firm and actually, and we do meet um, more of his supporting characters, that's when I felt like, 
okay, I can continue reading this because I see that there are other characters in his world that are far more um, aligned with my my perspective and my worldview. So I felt like those those friends, even Sir, his mother, his cousin, Nigel, who I came to love, those characters articulated more of the perspective that I believed in. And so it was a lot easier for me to engage in the text when their voices took over. And so to your unicorn paragraph, the one that you love so much. Yeah, you want me to read it now? I think you want to read it. So you should go ahead, read it in your voice. That's going to help you launch your voiceover career. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> uh, this the father of Nigel, the husband or now widow of Penny. It's towards the middle of the book. He says, I am a unicorn. I can read and write. I have all my teeth. I've read Plato, Wolf, Nikki Giovanni, and Friend. I've never been to jail. I've voted in every election since I was 18. I finished high school. I finished college. I finished law school. I pay taxes. I don't have diabetes, high blood pressure, or the itis. If you randomly abduct 100 black men from the streets of the city and deposit us into a gas chamber, I will be the only one who fits this profile. I will be the only one who survives. Is it because I'm better than the other 99? Nope. It's because I'm lucky, and I know it. Somehow, the grinding effects of a world built to hurt me have not yet eliminated my every opportunity for a happy life, as is the case for so many of my brethren. The world is a centrifuge that patiently waits to separate my Nigel from his basic human dignity. I don't have to tell you that this is an unjust planet. That paragraph, Rhonda. Ladies and gentlemen, Aaron Solomon <laughs> reading Marius Carlos Ruffin. He is available for voiceover work. But yes, you were saying about that paragraph. Yeah. It, it just... I think, as I told you, I was reading, it was a page, my page turner. I got to page 134 of my version of the book. And, you know, previous books I've highlighted and bracketed all through, but I was too busy enjoying the book to do any bracketing. But I had to stop it. It stopped me in my tracks. And I had to highlight that paragraph. So I really appreciated uh, him seeing um, another side of, 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 of black folks, that, that one out of 90, that one out of 100. Uh, we all get placed in certain buckets. They they like all places in, a, in in the Tico, but even the folks outside of the Tico uh, uh, encounter some of those same experiences that folks within the Tico, or most of those same experiences folks within the Tico encounter. So, it's a dope book, folks. Wait, we haven't talked about the ending. Well, we haven't talked about the ending when he. Oh my gosh. The ending, I think, is just incredibly important to think about because Nigel has taken on, he, first of all, Nigel has evolved as a character. He starts the beginning of the story as a young, impressionable child who believes what his parent tells him, who applies the cream, wears the hat, and mm -hmm. follows along with his father's plan to, uh, to eradicate this this birthmark that he has to minimize the appearance of the birthmark. But throughout the story, we see Nigel paying more and more attention 
to the politics around him, meeting people like Supercargo, seeing, um, becoming friends with Araminta, experiencing unconditional love from her, her teaching him self-acceptance, which is so beautiful, so <clears throat> that by the end of the story, Nigel and his father reunite for a moment. And we know that his father pursued him basically to the end of the world to find him. And Nigel finds him and he says basically to him, um, even though you have found us, we don't want you here. We, we don't want your beliefs. We don't want your opinions, your attitudes. I'm looking for, um, for that section. So where he says, oh my gosh, I just found it. Mm -hmm. So, um, she says, uh, she's right to say I didn't need to understand then, but I do now. I'll ask again, Dad, why did you really come here? So Nigel is really putting his dad on the spot and telling mm -hmm. him, like, be honest about what it is that you're actually pursuing in life for me. Just have the, have the balls to, to say it to my face, what you want to do. Nigel and Araminta have a baby, and the baby is brown skin from the beginning. Um, mm -hmm. Not pinkish and unsure of what the baby is mm -hmm. going to look like, but comes out brown skin from the beginning. And Nigel says something to his dad. He says, do you honestly think you would ever be able to accept her looking the way she does? I, I stopped myself from speaking and looked down. And here's Nigel again. At least you're really thinking about it. I appreciate that, but we don't need that in our lives. Go home, enjoy what you've done to yourself, but don't haunt us anymore. Yeah. I love that. I love that Nigel had fully evolved, yeah. that he no longer had to listen to his ridiculousness of his father, and that he was able to speak so compellingly in his own truth, yeah. but also with empathy. You know, he says, I appreciate that you're thinking about it, but Mm -hmm. is not for us. And then the last chapter, we see the narrator completely spiraling, completely unmoored. He's traveling all over the world. Mm -hmm. He has his passport lost, so he lost his identity. And he's fully demelinated himself, by the way. I don't know if you mentioned that. He has fully demelinated himself. Yes. And so he is that, that character that we think of in Invisible Man, the person who has no ties to his, his community and literally is a migrant of the world. He has faded into a nothingness uh -huh. where Nigel and Araminta, accepting of themselves, are very confident, loving, anchored, and rooted in their own world. Yeah. When we got to that ending, I was like, I'm done. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, was, I was so spent by, by, the, uh, by the end of that story. Yeah, and I love the word shows and don't haunt us. As happened for our parents or grandparents or our ancestors, it, it can be haunting for one reason or another. Yeah. But you have to really be careful about how you pass that on to the to the next generation or if it is worth passing on to the future generation. Some may be protective or helpful, but a yeah. lot of it is just carried on oppression that can be released. Some can't be released, but some of it can. And in this case, it could have been released. Great holiday read. So if you're going to look for something to read over the uh, Thanksgiving holiday, then this is a great book to snuggle up to. It's a great pair of books to give as a gift 
if you want someone to be delighted by Brevin's voice and really appreciate his, uh, his critique of, of society. Thank you for tuning in to our October book talk. We are so proud of ourselves for continuing to practice a skill we have learned in kindergarten and reading all these books. And even though I might have tossed a little shade about one of us reading two books, I am super proud of co-host for reading and loving this book in October. I'm proud of myself. I now buy books like I used to buy bourbon. And I'm saving <laughs> money and becoming a connoisseur of American literature because of it. That is quite the come up. <laughs> so <laughs> November is a month where we express gratitude over delicious meals and think about our connection to land and indigenous peoples. Basically, I'm saying everything but Thanksgiving. So Bryant Terry's new book, Black Food, explores the African diaspora through recipes, essays, and photographs. It is the book that we'll be reading for the holiday season. Yes, please join us as we close out 2021. Read along, grab a recipe for Thanksgiving, wrap it up and place it under the tree. It's a beautiful book. Black Food, edited by Bryant Terry, is giving proper depth to the culture. And I think when you read, you'll find some work by one of our previous guests, Pastor Heber Brown III. So definitely check it out for that reason and remember to shop local. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Sign up for the newsletter on the website, thedatproject.com. And remember, dear TDP tribe, resistance is a highway with many lanes. Trust the process and you will find yours. Take care, folks. <laughs>